New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mendrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mendrinos. Hello, everybody. This is Jim Mendrinos, and welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series. And today is just a fun, fun episode for me. Somebody I don't get to spend enough time with. Uh, and it's a performer that kind of buckles up against the popular stereotype that comics have to be negative, and we have to talk about things that are sad, and we have to talk about things that suck. Uh, his act has always been very positive. His act has always been uh, very much about family and home and life, and he's been doing this for the longest time. And we are very happy to have him. So sit back, relax. We're going to learn a ton today. Please help us welcome our guest for the Comedy Legacy Series, Mr. Joey Cola. All right. Uh, this is going to be a really fun episode of the Comedy Legacy Series for me because I get to spend an hour with somebody that I don't get to see that often. But every time I do see him, we have the greatest time together. Joey Cola. Joey, how are you doing today? Hey, Jim. It's great to talk to you. Great to be with you this afternoon, man. It's just uh, when you first got in touch with me to... Uh, to, to do this, okay. I was blown away because I consider you, uh, I, 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 um, I consider you uh, a comedy scholar. Uh, I, I know we've been on the front lines together over the years. Oh, yeah. and, um, and to have someone like you do uh, an interview of me, I want you to know I'm completely honored. So thank you for well, having me with you today, man. I don't know if you remember this, but you actually hosted my very first ever TV appearance. Um, Rick Morgan had this comedy in on the Bay. Oh my god! Oh my god! I, uh, I I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just I, because we've been home, I, my wife and I've been going through all our old uh, bins and stuff, and I just found all the notes from that show, and I got I got a whole I got stories about that show. You know, I put Adam Sandler on on stage on that show for his first time, yeah, like, first time doing stand up because his grandmother lived in Bayshore, which is where I was from. And it was called Comedy on the Bay, Mowbray Street Cafe, Comedy on the Bay. And it was uh, run by this guy named uh, Dorsey, uh, Dorsey. And uh, Rick Morgan booked it. And what happened there was my friend Tony Louisi, who I grew up with in Islip, right next to Bayshore out there. And um, he, he worked at a Group W Cable with a guy named Lou Schaffberg. And Tony is a video guy. Even to this day, he's a video guy. So once Cable started busting out, Group W Cable got to 120,000 homes, but they had no programming. So on that channel was two clamors from the Great South Bay sitting in lawn chairs in a studio talking about, hey, I got a bushel of little necks, and I got a bushel of chatter clams, and the flounder biting, and it was so boring. So Tony said to me, want to do a comedy show? I said, sure, where would we do it? Let's go to Mowbray Street Cafe. We produced the comedy show, the TV show. And uh, as well as giving the audience in-house a, uh, a comedy show there also. So that's, uh, that's how that came about. And yeah, you were on one of those shows. Oh, yeah. That was, that was the very first time I had TV cameras pointed at me. Yeah, we, did, we think we did uh, 24 of them or something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we had Jackie Marling and uh, Rich Jenny did it. And uh, a lot of great New York uh, stand-ups did it. I'm and pretty sure I was on Jenny's show. What's that? I'm pretty sure I was on Jenny's episode. Oh, really? Okay, all right, good. Yeah, he was an idol of mine and a, and a mentor. He took me under his wing. And when people ask me who are my influences in comedy, 
I say three Richies and a Dom. I say Richard Pryor, Rich Jenny, Richie Minavini, who still is, and yeah. uh, and Dom Herrera. You know, and then of course I was influenced by Rob Bartlett and you know Bobby Collins and Bob Nelson and Chris Rush and you know all those people. But you know, I learned really young how to how to be funny from. Uh, my family parties, my Uncle Ralph, my Uncle Angelo, my mother and father would dance and sing and we would tell jokes. And uh, when my Uncle Ralph would play guitar, he handed a four-year-old Joey Cola a mic and said, tell jokes, Joey, and sing, Joey. And not only me, all my cousins. And that's why my cousins went on to play guitar and tell jokes. And, and they were also uh, pretty um, pretty active in some level of show business, you know. <laughs> Let's. Uh, you brought up a, a whole lot of people and I want to talk to you about some of those people because people don't understand when they see a comic on stage how many people actually have to reach back and help us out that's right for us to get where we need to go that's right um, you mentioned richie minervini richie minervini saw me in the city one time and said hey have you ever worked on the island and i went no and he goes where's your date book you know and, <laughs> and he, he had me mc over at Eastside. yeah um, he's a great guy yeah and, and so it's people like that that reach out and do kind things for you. You mentioned that those guys were helpful to you. How were they helpful to you? I mean, inspiration before you did stand-up, obviously. But then once you were doing stand-up, what were the interactions like? Well, Richie Minavini, at the, at the time I was, uh, I was 18 years old. I had gone to Brockport State University at a high school. Me and my friend Tonga Morano from high school, we were going to go upstate and we were going to be the blah, blah, blah. Well, we realized how cold it was upstate in Brockport. We came back down, went to Suffolk Community College for two years, and then we went to CW Post. So while I was going to Post, I was also a foreman on a loading dock at an Italian bread factory out in, uh, in Hopog, uh, Central Islip, you know. But um, at that point... I was watching TV and I saw a special on HBO about the, the club Pips. And um, it was it was made by Seth Schultz uh, about about the club. And it was featured Robert Klein and uh, Joan Rivers and Seinfeld and everybody who worked Pips in Brooklyn, uh, which was actually the first comedy club in the whole country. It was called Folkways Cafe before it was Pips and Robert Guillaume and and uh, Brenner and uh, everybody was there. Rodney, everybody was there back in the day. So that was in Emmons Avenue in, um, in Chiefshead Bay, Brooklyn. So I watched that special and I said, oh, my God, I, I think I want to do this because I, were, I was already uh, at the point where working on the Lodi Dockery's Hambread Factory. I was doing the Christmas parties and the company parties. I was the MC and I would do stand up. Just making, you know, making jokes about, you know, the Italian bread company and, and stuff and doing impressions of the people that work there. Yeah. So what happened was um, I heard about the East Side Comedy Club and I also heard about Richard M. Dixon's on Long Island where you can go in and it's a talent night and Jackie Martling had the crow's nest and it was a bunch of little talent nights. I figured, you know what, I, I think I want to do this stand up thing. Let me go to a bunch of different places. So I was kind of a fly on the wall. I only performed at Dixon's about four or five times. But then Richie had the East Side Comedy Club. So I went in there on, a, on one night when Peter Bales was emceeing. It, it was an audition night. And I prepared about five minutes. And I didn't kill, but I did okay. And at the time at the loading dock at the Italian Bird Factory, I was going to college, working at the Italian Bird Factory, and I was making just under $60 a week and putting in almost 40 hours. I was making like $3.65 an hour. So I go to Eastside Comedy Club and I get on stage and I do like five minutes 
And I come off stage and Richie's there and he hands me a $20 bill. And he goes, you want to, can you come back next week and keep coming back? I'd like you to be part of our roster here. And I saw that $20 bill and I'm thinking I work 40 hours a week to make $60. I just talked for five minutes and this guy handed me a 20. I was like, wow, there's got to be something here. So then I started writing like crazy and getting in the mix with Steve O and John Bizarre and Melvin George and all the other comics, uh, you know, Hal Spear and, and Nelson and Rosie O'Donnell. And, and at that point, Eddie Murphy was coming in and Jackie Mason would stop in. And, and I got into the Long Island mix at that point. And Richie uh, got me in that in that uh, that that uh, rotation. At the same time, I was also very interested in Pips, so I went in there and I met Marty Schultz and Seth Schultz and George Schultz at the time. So I started uh, working at Pips, and uh, then from there I went to the Improv. And uh, Peter Bales told me that I, if you want to be a successful comic, you can't just stay in Pennsylvania, Connecticut, or Jersey or Long Island. You've got to work those places and work the city at the same time. So I was also working all the city clubs, catch the improv, danger fields, you know, and who's on first, all the little back rooms, as well as working all the back rooms on Long Island and trying to merge into the Jersey rooms, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania um, at the same time. So Richie Minavini played a great, great role in my life and not only getting into the mix of that, the club at that point, but in 1986, my mom was killed in a car crash while they were coming back from seeing me at the uh, the comedy stop at the Trop in Atlantic City. And um, my friend Steve-O had gotten an audition for Star Search, and he got the show, and I was in a deep depression. So he picked me up and said, listen, you're coming out with me to coach me on Star Search. And we beat Martin Lawrence and Jackie Marling, and then eventually he lost, and we stayed with John Mulroney and Richie, uh, Richard Jenny at their apartment. And I wound up getting on stage after two and a half months and not being on stage because my mom died. And um, that's how I, uh, I got on stage. I did okay. I didn't do well. I did about five minutes. They, they brought me up in, uh, to, in a quality inn uh, in, in the San Bernardino Valley. It was an all-black audience. And I held my own, but I realized I'm not going to kill myself because my mother died. I'm not going to get out of the business. And uh, I held my own. And uh, I came back, and Richie Minavini gave me as much stage time as I wanted. And then I only I only middled for like four months out of my career because I went from a very traumatic emceeing in Atlantic City that I middled for a little while. And then I can't explain what happened. I picked myself up by my bootstraps. I got some real good energy. My wife was my girlfriend at the time, and I had a lot of powerful people around me. And um, I started headline, and then uh, came Joey Cola, I guess. So yeah, it was. Um interesting because i've known you pre 86 and and post 86 yes and post 86 man the transformation on stage with what you were doing was epic your stuff has always been incredibly positive you know a lot of comics go on stage and they talk about this sucks that sucks you never do that you've always gone up and, and you've talked about the joy of life so much more than other comics and post Post-86, that just amped up. Was that a conscious choice for you? Did you decide to stay positive? Or is yep. that just what interests you as a writer? It was a conscious choice because my mother was a positive person. You know, when I got home from uh, going to college and uh, and, and, and working uh, the Italian bird factory and doing the clubs, I'd get home 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning and be up again at 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. 
And, you know, I'd have a note on my bedroom door. We, we love our angel of anxiety. My friends used to call me the angel of anxiety, you know, because I'm an anxious guy, you know. So, but my mother, you know, a lot of comics come from, uh, you know, backgrounds where they were hurt um, emotionally and physically. And um, all comics carry some kind of baggage that they have to get out. And it comes from anger at something. I didn't get that from my family. My parents were very loving. Um, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, um, but my dad was at the Little League games. I mean, he was a drinker a little bit, and there was there was some problems. He was, you know, he was he was a nicer Archie Bunker, let's say. But my mom and a great guy, just a great just a great man. He he wasn't he was full of love. My father. I mean, like I said, he was a crane operator for Con Edison. He was a he was a brash guy, you know, but he was a very loving man. He always made time for my brother and I to coach baseball, to go in the pool with us, to show us, talk to us about nature and things. Even though he was a kid from Maspeth, Queens, my mom is from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. That's where they they met on Metropolitan Avenue, pretty much at a dance. <laughs> my mom was a saint. She was an Italian, four foot eleven. When the newspaper boy in the winter came to my house and it was cold and he didn't have a hat, he left my house with a hat. Um, it's all about giving, and uh, we're only here for a half hour, man, all of us. We're here for a half hour. You got to get in. We got to help each other and then move on, and that means beyond all color lines, gender lines, whatever. We're only here. Our souls are only here for a little, little while, so we might as well get in and help each other, and I found my personally in my life that when I do that, it comes back tenfold. People ask me what my goals and dreams were. Well, I, I had those goals and, goals and dreams when I was a teenager, when I was young, and I've far surpassed all of them. I'm not a millionaire, and it, money has nothing to do with it. I'm, I, I, I'm married to the, the woman of my dreams. I'm, luckily, I'm not addicted to anything but chocolate. My kids, thank God, love me, and I love them, and they're healthy. I, I um. I keep my life very, very simple. Like I told you, I raise butterflies, I plant plants, and I watch birds, and I um, like to go fishing. And I find a lot of joy in the very simple things, the very, very simple things. And when an audience leaves my show, I want them to leave happy. I don't want to. I don't, I don't want. There, I don't want there to be any confrontation. If, uh, if they want to make fun of me, that's fine. If they want to heckle me, that's fine because. Um, what I do is all self-deprecating because I make fun of myself first. And I try to point out, um, I mean, I'm a spiritual guy. I mean, I hate to use the word spiritual. I believe um, what has helped me in my life is reading about the teachings of Christ. But now I also read the Torah and I read the Quran and I, I learn about um, Hinduism. And I, I try to get rid of all religion and connect myself directly to the planet. Um, when I see some of the plants I've grown you know, some of the flowers and things like that, I'm completely blown away. And I like to think that um, when I get on stage, I'm harmless to them. And I like the audience, again, to leave with a feeling of joy. You know, we paid money to laugh. So I want them to laugh. And my message would be of joy. You know, when you and I were coming up in the clubs, the one thing that I think was beaten into us, and, you know, I knew George Collin. We were friends for a while. Um, what was beaten into us was, if you can't make them laugh, make them think. So if a lot of our friends and people we came up with found a platform to try to jump on, you know. But I, I like to subscribe to um, the Seinfeld way of going 
for the laugh. Whenever you see Jerry, he doesn't get too, too deep because he knows the bottom line is the laugh, that physiological thing that releases the endorphins that make you uh, feel good. You know, and I also am a big fan of like an, a Lou Costello, a, you know, Vincent Gardenia, Jack Lemon, all character people. That, that's who made me laugh. My Uncle Ralph, my Uncle Angelo, my dad and mom, they were, they were characters, man, physically, emotionally, and, and they were always silly. You know, Jess Kirsten, Jess Kirsten is one of my favorite people to watch because, you know, hashtag always be silly, and she's got total vulnerability. You know, Carol Leifer told me years ago, if you want to be a real good stand-up comic or a writer, you have to be totally vulnerable, totally you know, and uh, I learned that early on, not only in my acting classes with Joanna Beckson, but um, she enhanced that. But from watching people like Minavini and Jenny and, and you and, you know, um, and like uh, like you yesterday, we talked on uh, Facebook and Leanne Lord's name came up and talk about vulnerability on stage. Oh, my God. And it doesn't mean that you have to bring uh, a certain type of energy to the stage. It's whatever energy. It's whatever your energy is, whether you're a Stephen Wright or whether you're a, a, a Kinnison. That energy conveying into making an audience happy is, I think, is what the secret is of getting gigs and making a, a real business out of this because it's show business, you know? Yep. What I've always admired about you, um, and this is off the of stand-up, this is person. You take the time to really connect with people. Um, you were doing a headline show at Gotham, and you probably don't even remember this. Uh, I was doing the downstairs show while they had the one upstairs. Uh -huh. And we were talking in the hallway, and a young comic who had no godly reason to, to approach or talk um, just came up to you, and instead of saying, hello, my name is, and extending a hand, you know, they walked right up to you, and they went, wow, how'd you get those gigs warming up the crowds on the TV shows? And instead of just, you know, being upset that they didn't even bother to introduce themselves, you just talked to them. You just talked to that comic for a good half hour and gave that comic such solid advice. What is it, my theory, and this is a theory I've always held to, if you treat people the way you want to be treated, yes. you know, it's going to come back to you. Not always. Yeah. Sometimes people are shitty. You yeah. know, and you can't avoid that. But... What is it about you that you've been able to maintain that your entire career? Because nobody, literally no comic I've ever met has ever had a bad thing to say about you. You may be the <laughs> only comic that that's true about. Well, I'm very connected. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you the truth now. I don't, I don't believe in religion. I don't, uh, I, if you want to call me a Christian because I read the teachings of Christ, uh, whether you want to believe he was the son of God, a prophet, or just a guy who maybe said a lot of things that people wrote about. However you want to take him in, um, that's everybody's personal uh, preference. I take it in by reading the Psalms and Proverbs uh, almost every day, and that's what helps me out. And I listen to people that speak the truth, and you have to decipher who's speaking the truth and who just wants money and, and is lying to make you feel good. And... Um, also, you know, I watch the greatest story ever told in King of Kings and over and over again. And when you watch certain things and listen to certain parables, you realize that it, it does apply to our lives. 
Now, there's many people on the planet, this planet, that won't be touched by this. And as, the, as these words are coming out of my mouth right now, are, are, shut, are turning, turning, being turned off by me only because I mentioned God. And that's okay. You know, that, that's okay. I'm not looking to convert anybody. If God wants to come down and touch a soul or touch a person, that's up to him. Um, but I'm just telling you what helps me. Um, you know, Christ sat with little kids. He took the time to talk to everybody. And I believe that everybody, um, you could learn from every soul that's on this planet, and everybody deserves your time when they're in front of you and they want your attention. You know, um, I'm not a famous guy. You know, I'm just a, a guy that m makes people laugh. Luckily, I've been able to pay my bills with it. Hopefully, I'll be able to do that a little bit longer. And then and then I'll go to whatever's next, either on this planet or whatever's next, wherever my energy and my soul goes to. But while you're here, whether it's show business or not, whether it's comedy or not, whether it's singing, whether it's landscaping, plumbing, being a carpenter, whatever you whatever you are, we have to take the time to give attention to those souls because that's really all we got is those connections to those souls. Whether you are a homeless person or you're, you know, uh, someone who's very respected in show business, you got to take the time to go to each person because you could learn from every single one of them. Every single one person that, or soul that comes in front of you, you could learn good, you could learn not so good. But the thing is, where my interest is, what jacks me up you know when you're in certain parts of your life you go oh i want to watch the mets and i hope they're doing well i want to go to a game i want to watch that game i want to watch the jets i want to watch this i want you know but as you become more in tune with the world around you not only the planet but the people and the souls you realize that's all we got you know i mean my my wife's grandmother was in a nursing home she was 93 years old. She raised four kids and countless grandkids, and she was the matriarch of the family. I live in her house. We bought her house. And when she was in a nursing home, close to the end, she wasn't in good shape. And I said, is there anything I can get for you? And she said, bring me a paper plate. So I'm like, what does she want a paper plate for? Does she not like the plates that are at this place? And what does she want? And um Next day, I went and I brought her a paper plate, and she took the paper plate, and she just started fanning herself with the paper plate. I said, what are you going to do with the paper plate? She goes, I'm doing it. I'm fanning myself with this paper plate. And it, and it was so simple. This woman who was 93, who had been through hell and back with four kids and lived in the city, then Long Island, and it, I mean, her story is crazy. But when it comes down to it, the bottom line is... She just needed a paper plate to fan herself, and then she died. It was the, the simplest of things, you know, that, that, and that's my show. When I feed my birds out my kitchen window, that's my Netflix. Uh, you know, one day I was, Jim, it was, it, this is a great story, man. I was going to Rosie O'Donnell. She was working, we were working at 30 Rock, and I, was, I, I got to Penn Station. I'd get on the, the one train to 50th Street, and I'd come out, you know. So I'd be standing there, and... Uh, and this guy was standing next to me and was all maxed out with a Prada suit and his hair was all greased back and he had the briefcase and he's holding a Starbucks cup with the top on it, you know, and he's sipping it. And he's, he's, this guy is maxed out. New York City, you know, he's a Wall Street guy, you know. So 
I, out of the left corner of my eye, I see a homeless guy coming up, and he's wrapped in a blanket. He's got this big mane of hair, full beard, and he's holding a crumpled up Starbucks cup with no top on it, and it's got some change in it. And he's shaking the chain at change as he's walking down the line of people that are waiting for this fifth, the, the, the one train. So he shakes it in front of me, and I flip him some change, right? And he gets past me to the guy, the Prada guy, who's to my right. And he look, he doesn't even ask the guy for money. He doesn't even shake the cup. He looks at the guy and goes, hey, dude, if you want them to put money in it, you have to take the top off. <laughs> That's what he said to the guy. How great is that story? That's He's awesome. giving this guy advice. And he's giving him advice on how to make money. If you want them to put money in it, the Starbucks cup, you got to take the top off. Oh, that is that is such a New York story, too. <laughs> Isn't that the greatest story, man? And it's things like that that, that I witness every day. I mean, I, whether I'm home quarantined with my wife or I'm out in public, uh, no matter what time it is, whether it's a time... Um, of, uh, you know, to, to level ourselves to the point to find e equality amongst humans or a, 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 a virus or it's uh, winter or summer or spring or fall or I'm doing well in my calendar's booked or I'm not doing well, my calendar's not so booked, whatever it is, whatever is happening, you got to have your eyes open enough to look for those little miracles that pop in. Yeah, you do. I want to talk to you. I got to talk to you about this because I need. You're an awesome person, but people don't realize how great a comic you are. I, I think you are so underrated on stage, you know. And I think a lot of that comes, you know, with career path for the past 27 years or so. You've been doing a lot of warm up, so right. you're you're not so much in front of the cameras as much as you really should be, you know, based on your talent. Right. Um, but again, you know, it, that's that's a great career path. When you're on stage, what are the things you do as a performer that gets you ready to, to go from audience to audience? Well, um, for I'm, re I'm, reach I'm reaching, I'm leaning over now because I want to show you what I got. I've got my uh, my my notepad and my two pens and, and a, two regular pens and my sharpie marker uh -huh. that I've been carrying in my pocket for. Not these particular ones. Yeah. For 45 years. I mean, I've been doing stand-up for 40, but over 40 years, you know, I need this to remind myself of what I have to do every day. Today is power wash and do some cement work around the house. But this is my, this is where I write all my bits. And I've got, I go through 10 of these a month. And, you know, not every, I'm I mean, right with you. there you go. So you got to write everything down. And the goal is to get those bits that are going to stick in people's minds. The cat bit, the mother wake up bit. I did a year, years ago, I did a bit about Bob Ross, a painter bit, and Bob Ross saw it and sent me a paint kit and wrote me a nice letter. And, um, you know, you know, it's like Eddie Murphy and the ice cream bit. Chris Rock has a million bits. I mean, name any good comic and you remember them for their bits. And there's nothing like writing a joke honing it down, giving it 20 times out. And after 20 times, you know, if, if you see something there, keep honing it. If you don't see it, anything after 20 times, you lose it or give it to somebody else or, or, or running it for the comics. You know, Joe Starr and I write together a lot. Chris Monty, uh, there's comics that we, we, that I'm constantly running bits by. 
like uh, I, I mean, no less than 15 times a week am I on the phone with other comics going, do you think this is funny? Or if you think it's funny, can you tag it up? Can you punch it up? And the excitement of that is amazing. I mean, when Richie Minavini first gave me that 20, when I went on stage and got those laughs, I was like, oh, my God, I could make people, strangers in a comedy club laugh, and it's not my family. And that was like, I mean, you know the high. I mean, there's no nothing higher. The only thing I could say is it's like a thousand times taken – a heroin but you don't get the you don't get to have to deal with the drugs you get from a, the, the euphoria from the all these uh, endorphins being re released it's a chemical thing so for me it's always about the next bit and when you when something fun so funny happens or somebody says something funny um, and you and you discover that it's like a twinkling it's like oh my god it's a sparkle you know and when and you're like, oh my God, that's hysterical. I'm going to write that down. And I can't wait to write on, write on that. Now, my, my particular uh, uh, style is that I realize that people pay for energy. Now, it doesn't mean energy like busting out of craziness. I, that's just the way I am. I learned to talk with my hands and, and I'm a high energy type A guy. However, um, people pay to see energy and thoughtfulness put into your act. If you can combine the energy, your energy, whatever energy you use to combine those thoughts and thoughtfulness, then it works. So um, so what I do is, I again, I, I'm constantly writing. I'm constantly looking for the new bit. And it's, you know what, Jim? You know, it's it's things that make me laugh, too. Yeah. You know, and a lot of that is, is you know, not G-rated stuff. I mean, I like dirtier comics. I mean, believe me, I love Dennis Regan. I love Gaffigan. I, I love them all. But, uh, and that's the clean stuff make, makes it work. But, I mean, they make it work. But uh, I am not, my, not my, my whole act isn't dirty, but um, I like to, I, I like to salt and pepper with, with some dirty stuff because I'm a big fan of Richard Pryor and, and Carlin and, and people like that that weren't exactly clean. But sometimes it takes a little bit of being on the edge to get your point across, you know? Yep. I, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about energy because. Dear God, you're like the Energizer Bunny on stage. You mm. really do, you know, have Thanks. a ton of it. And as as somebody who's had to follow you in some of the city clubs on occasion, that is that is a difficult haul for whoever has to walk on <laughs> stage behind you. But the energy is that a choice? What happens? You know, a lot of young comics who are seeing this may not know that there are days where you don't have that energy. There are days That's where right. you don't have that passion. Yet That's when right. you hit the stage. Boom, it's there. Is it manufactured? Is it learned over the years? Or is it just that's your comedy and that's what you do? I've learned that I have to I have to get to a certain place for it to work for me. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you you know if I'm a carpenter and I got a toolbox and I'm missing a hammer or a saw that I need, it's not gonna work. I have to get to a certain place. Now, whether that's eating a bar of chocolate on the way to the gig, whether it's taking a nap that afternoon to, to be rested, whether it's not eating and eating after the gig, whatever it takes, there's certain things, that rituals we all go through to get to that place. And that place for me was conveying uh, my words uh, with a certain energy. And I, again, I, people pay to see energy. They want to pay like they pay to see something. When they when they go to see Springsteen, they did four hours. You're like, wow, I got my money's worth. So I want them to I want them to get their money's worth. But I also um, want to use every tool in my arsenal. And um, when Colin and I used to talk a lot, you know, him and I became friends. 
he admired that about me. And he also gave me some tips about taking a punchline straight out to the audience instead of doing it sideways. Like every once in a while, I'd be in thought and I would take a punchline to the side. And he said, why do you do that? And I said, I don't know. I goes, he goes, well, you, you, you weren't paying attention there and there. He goes, why don't you just take every punchline straight out? And um, I started doing that and it worked, you know. Um, you pick up things from other comics and we, through conversation and through watching other comics. Let's face it, we, we all pick up things from, uh, from other comics. We watch it, how, what they do that works and how could, not steal it, but how could I make this personality get to another level without, uh, without being exactly like somebody else? You have to be your own person. You have to be original, you know. So I felt, me for me to drive a point home, about my brother-in-law, about my wife, about me picking up dog crap in the backyard, whatever I'm talking about that, you know, that I don't want to do or whatever. I want to drive that point home. For me, physically, it's, you know, bending knees and, and going like this, telling people, hey, man, I'm, I mean what I'm talking about right now. I Listen to me. Listen to me because I mean this stuff. You know, that's what I have to do physically. And it was, it was so um, wild recently, recently within the last two years, uh, Robert De Niro did a, a movie about a comedian. I think it was called The Comedian or something like that. Yeah. And Jessica Kirsten was, um, was his coach on the movie. I happened to be doing uh, um, the uh, Crescent Beach Club in Bayville for Tom and Jigno. It's a, a benefit. It was me, Tommy Gooch, and Chris Roach. And on the show, and De Niro was shooting part of that movie downstairs in that catering place, in that restaurant catering place. So we're doing a gig, we're doing the gig upstairs, and Jess Kirsten comes upstairs and sees me and goes, Oh my God, you're working here tonight? I said, Yeah, I'm doing a benefit. He goes, I'm, I'm working with De Niro downstairs. I, he's got to come up and see you. I said, Okay. So he, she goes downstairs and she brings the whole team, De Niro, the producer, the director, everybody up to see my act. Just before I went on stage, no pressure at all, right? No. So I get on stage and I, I see them watching me. And it's like for a while, it was just me and De Niro. I'm looking. I mean, I had 300 people in the audience, but it was like I was focused on him. He was focused on me. And I, I went all out for 20 minutes. Then they left halfway through my act. And it was just me and the audience doing my thing. And then that was 40 minutes. And then the back 20, because I had to do an hour, the back 20, De Niro came back into the room by himself and stood in the back of the room. Now, the audience didn't see him. They didn't know he was there because he was in the way back of the room. It was dark. There were, you know, raffle baskets back there. So I, I, I really let, took all the stops out the last 20 minutes, and I killed him. I had a standing ovation. So I came off stage, and I ran right to him. And I said, uh, did you, did you want to talk about anything? He goes, yeah, and this is Robert De Niro now. I just met him, you know. He goes, uh he goes, why did you bend your knees on that punchline? Why did you do this with your hand? I saw, I noticed you walked to this part of the stage and you took it straight out and, and you, uh, you elevated your voice and you hit this word. You, um, I said, well, that's part of a setup and a punchline. You know, that's part of uh, using your physical ability, whether it's your hands, your head moving back and forth, your, whatever you got physically to... Uh, to convey this laughter, this joke, this punch, this tag, use those weapons in your arsenal, um, for lack of a better term, to uh, to get that laugh, you know. And he dissected he dissected my act, De Niro, um, as an actor, I guess. He dissected 
what I was doing up there. And it was really wild. So him and I, we went into another room, this, uh, this other room that was off that room. And we talked for a good 20, 30 minutes uh, just about the mechanics of telling a joke. It's not just the words and the inflections in a voice, but it's what you look like physically also. Yeah, I don't think that enough comics pay attention to that. Uh, there's a, a new generation of comics that are very into the verbal, what they're saying, how the joke yeah. is constructed. And there's nothing wrong with that as somebody, you know, my reputation is that I'm a wordsmith, I'm a writer, so naturally right. you would think I'm predisposed to that. I don't think new comics understand that stand-up is a performer's medium. It's not a writer's medium. That's right. <clears throat> you know, and you put so much attention and so much detail into the performance. Um, Creation-wise, when you're, when you're pulling a bit together, how much of that detail comes in, in the notebook phase when you're writing it down and saying, okay, I should have more energy here. I should raise my voice or use my hands. And how much of it comes when you bring it on stage and try it on? Well, depending on the gig, it depends on what I'm wearing also. If it's a corporate type of gig or a, a big, the Bogota Atlantic City and I'm wearing a suit, I come out all buttoned up and tight. By the time I'm done, I'm completely disheveled. Uh, my tie is undone. I'm, my shirt is out. And, I, I you know, sometimes I'll, my, I, I do a joke about being thin and not thin and my click belt that I'm wearing and the, the click belt breaks and the pants fall down. It's very, uh, it's very, there's a lot of like, uh, it's a gags sometimes, you know. But other times when a club is smaller and, and I got a tighter audience, especially like if I'm working in the city, there's no room to bring all of that in. And um, so you have to do it verbally. And then the material has to be there. You know, I don't know if you saw Seinfeld's last special from the Beacon. Um, it was very, very good. Actually, he jumps out of a, in the beginning, he jumps out of a helicopter into New York Harbor and kind of swims. Like, it's, it's pretty wild. But Jerry wasn't, he wasn't exactly classic Jerry this time. He was very physical and very, there was a sense of anger and there was more of an energy to it, um, which reminded me a lot of Richard Jenny. Richard Jenny, to drive a point home, would lay on the stage. He, he'd become a character in that he'd lay on the stage or he'd do physical things that become the character or the situation he's talking about. I write most of that on stage. So, so I'll get the idea, I'll have the idea on my pad, and then I'll bring the idea to, to the stage, and then, and then it's just a matter of getting on stage and working it out. Now, I live in Belmore on Long Island, and I got Governor's Levittown to my left and the brokerage to my right, my two home clubs, and I know the owners very well where I can get on stage on a Wednesday to Sunday anytime I want, sometimes twice a night or whatever, and go up and work it out. I mean, this quarantine thing is the longest I've ever not been on stage. Before that, it was only two weeks, and that was my honeymoon. I even got on stage in my honeymoon. <laughs> so I don't, I have never not been on stage. I mean, I recently did Joey Cole's Comedy Club uh, from my living room. I did a Facebook Live. I did two of them, and they got 25,000 views. Now, people are asking for more, but I think I'm just going to let those suffice for a little while. I'll do a couple of... PB&J with Joey K, you know, um, that a little bit type of thing. But um, people want me to do Zoom shows. I don't really think it works, so I, I turned down a bunch of those. And recently I got called from a buddy who wants me to do 
um, drive-in. Uh, the guy's got uh, four stages, 600 cars to do it at a drive-in in a couple of weeks. So, I mean, maybe I'll do that upstate. We'll see what happens. But ultimately what we do is, you know, 200 seats, low ceilings, a mic and a light. And that's what, that's where I've made my living, not theaters, you know, back rooms, you know, the same places you and I have worked for yep. years for, for Dennis Ross and, and Gonzo and, you know, that's a life. And um, someday uh, maybe we'll write a book about it. <laughs> we definitely should. I, I, I want to talk to you, though, because you, again, you're kind of underselling yourself. You've also done a bunch of theaters. You've also done warm-up. You know, you, you work a lot of different menus that have a lot of different rules. For right. You know, the intimacy that we uh, – I can't speak for you. The intimacy that I love – in a comedy club, that audience being right there, you yeah, being able too, to yeah. talk to the guy, that disappears yeah. when you're in a theater and you can only see the front row. That's you know? right. Yeah, How the big you... you have to treat a certain way yeah. you would, different than your club. When I do Rachel Ray, I mean, I've been with Rachel. I started out with John Stewart, his original show, mm-hmm. uh, as far as warm-up is concerned, on WOR, where Wendy Williams shoots now, above us at Rachel Ray. I was a year with John, and I went to Rosie for six years, Martha Stewart for seven years, and now I'm going into my ninth season with Rachel Ray. Um, and in between, I did America's Got Talent at Radio City. It was 6,000 people, but Rachel's only 140 people. Um, so there is a good intimacy in that room. But uh, when you do warm-up, it's not your show. You know, it's you're a butler, you're a rodeo clown, you're a small piece, uh, in a, you're a cog in a big wheel. So you, you represent the show. Uh, you welcome them. You welcome them to her living room. But when I do stand-up, it's my house, and I get to do and say what I want. So that's the difference between warm-up and stand-up. And then it's different. Daytime is a show is different than, uh, you know, filling in for Eddie Brill doing Letterman every once in a while. Or um, then I do Kevin James's sitcoms. Uh, he had King of uh, – I, I was on King of Queens, but he did Kevin Can Wait. I was uh, warming up that show. And now The Crew, which is coming out on Netflix in September, we did seven episodes of that. Um you know, that's four or five hours and I have a DJ with me. So yeah, every, every gig is a different energy. Um, and you could only do certain bits, you know, when you do warm up, you got to be squeaky clean. So I gotta, I gotta take my act, which is, you know, I have my hour and 15 hour and 20 of, of material that I like to go to and take, make your act has got to be modular. I got to be able to take this and put it here and this and put it here and, you know, be able to close with this and open with this and, uh oh, things have changed. Now you got to open with this and close with this and you can be able to do that at a moment's notice. So, um, and, you know, given the, the situation of the world, you can't, uh, you can't ignore certain things that are happening also. Um, I like to try to keep things positive all the time, talk about certain things. I like to always uplift people, uplift the audience. When I'm doing warm-up, I sing with people. Um, but, uh, you know, but then there's also times when I'm doing warm-up when I just do straight stand-up. And I do, I do kind of make a point of that. And if there's going to be any kind of point, you know, if I was to die tomorrow, you know, I'd just like to say he made him laugh. He made a, he made a positive point. Um, you know, and, and you can only do that by teaching people. If somebody doesn't know what to do, you can't make fun of them for not knowing what to do. You have to take the time to teach that person what to do. After you've taught them, if they don't, if they decide not to go with what you taught them, that's on them. But um, that's why I take the time to talk to young comics 
which is my favorite thing to do. I loved, I love nothing better than talking about stand-up comedy because it's such a, it's such a thing, man. It's yeah. just such a joyful thing. I mean, the, you know, the end, the, 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 the feeling you get from when you make somebody laugh and then seeing them laugh. And then how great is it, Jim, when you do a show and people come up to you and thank you for making them laugh. Thank yeah. you. For, thank you for taking my mind off my cancer. Thank you for taking my mind off my mom died. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this is the first time my husband and I have gotten out of the house since we had our kid. And this was a great night. How great is that? It's like it's like a chef cooking a great meal for somebody and seeing them go, wow, that, that tasted great. You know, and again, that goes back to doing for others, do, doing unto others as you had them do unto you, you know. It's a basic rule. Do you know it feels so good still after all these years? And I, in my career, I've had to do 15, maybe 18,000 sets. Right. When you're on stage and you hit that first joke, you hit that first wave of laughter. Yeah. You when you're on stage. Yeah, yeah. You know, when somebody said to me, why do you do stand up, you know, even after all these years, I always point to that because there's yeah. nothing in the world that feels like that. Yeah, and how fun is it to dig for that first laugh when you got new material going? Oh yeah, and how, and how scary is it when you don't when you don't get it where you think it's going to come? Now, you you know? and I have had this conversation, man. Th th this is like deja vu for me because I remember years ago I opened a set on Long Island new material, a and you know you were with me on the show and we were talking about it afterwards. You also. We'll put your new material up front a lot of times too. Yeah, yeah. You know, well, we used to um, have writing sessions back in the day. I mean, it started with Richie Minavini and Kelly Rogers and Melvin George and like, you know, names I started out with years ago. And it came all the way up to recently. I do with write, write a lot, like I said, with Joe Starr and Chris Monty and yeah. and uh, Chris Roach and a lot of us will sit in a room and and, and write together sometimes, but. Um, when we first started doing it at the East Side Comedy Club, we would meet there during the day. Say we'd meet like, uh, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning, 1030 in the morning. And let's say there was 10 of us around a table. All of us would bring three or four topics with us. In other words, I want to talk about lemonade. I want to talk about raccoons. I want to talk about squid. And I want to talk about masonry. All right, let's just say those things. So now I'll spit out one of those things, lemonade. So we'll go around the table and each comic will, t will spit out something funny about lemonade to me. And I'll just be writing. I'll just be writing, you know, lemonade, this joke about lemonade, this joke about lemonade, this joke. Boom. And then, and then we'll go to the next person. That person will want to talk about uh, cryptocurrency or whatever. And then I'll think about something funny about cryptocurrency. And we'll go around the table about all those topics, everybody, for about three or four hours. Then we would break, go get something to eat. We'd leave the club, go eat at a diner, a Burger King, whatever it was. And then we'd separate in our cars. And we each of us would write jokes, only five minutes, but you know, five minutes could be an eternity. To come up with five minutes, you need sometimes 40 minutes of notes. So we'd come up with five minutes and we'd, we'd go on that night at Eastside and only perform the new stuff we wrote that day. And your other, your other comics were in the room and knew your act so well 
that if you got scared and you bailed and went to your old material, the other comics go, no, wrong, but eh, that's an old bit. Go back to the new stuff we wrote today. So the other comics would call you out while you were on stage if you didn't do the material we wrote that day. And they knew the material you wrote that day because they helped you write it. So it was, uh, it was a great uh, training ground back then in the 80s and 90s that if you were able to do that. And I not only did that in New York, but when I got to spend time in L.A., if I had to go to L.A. for a you know, pilot season or whatever it was, and I got to hang with L.A. comics or I got to go to Vegas, you know, whenever I did a, you know, comedy, uh, uh, The Riv or whatever I was doing in Vegas with the Bally's when Catch was there, um, you know, New York, especially New York comics, would call each other and we'd all meet because Carol Montgomery was out there and, oh, there's Adam Ferrara, there's uh, Greg Vecarello, there's, you know, whoever, we'd all go to P.F. Chang's or whatever and we'd go sit and eat and uh, eventually that, that would hopefully turn into a writing session also with John Bazaar out there and Nancy Ryan's out there and, yeah. you know, it became, uh, you know, I love these people. I, I love you. I, I love... All my comedy friends that I came up through the ranks with, because uh, not only, like Seinfeld said, do we have stand-up comedy in common, but we also know what each other's been through to get where we had to get to, yeah. uh, to do this successfully for years. Yeah. You know? Now, here's something that I absolutely marvel at. You, I don't know that you've ever turned down a gig. You just love being on stage. I have seen you in clubs that I go, he has no earthly reason for being in this room right. other than he wants to be on stage. Yeah, well, Pat Cooper told me years ago, never turn down a gig, $25 or $2,500. Don't turn it down. And I, <laughs> it's so funny you should say that. I, uh, I really want to tell these people my story, even if it's the same story that I've been telling for so many years. Like, a lot of comics will say, Joey, you got to write new bits, you know. Um, and I do. I know i got to write new bits. Yeah. I'm constantly trying to write new bits. But I also keep the old stuff in because I have people that, that like, they, like, they yell out, Freebird, like, you know what I mean? Like, they want to see the older stuff. So uh, there's times when I'll leave a, leave a club and I'll go, you didn't do the mother, uh, the go ahead, go ahead with the makeup and traffic. And you didn't do your mother wake up. And you didn't do your grandfather laugh bit. And you didn't do the cat bit. And you... I'm saying, well, I did some other stuff. Yeah, but we wanted. I brought my friend here to see that. So what I try to do is um, do all of the old stuff. Because, I mean, when you go see James Taylor, if he doesn't do Fire and Rain, you're pissed. When you, when you see Pink Floyd play, you don't see Comfortably Numb, you're pissed. You want to see the new stuff, but you want to see the old stuff. If you can give yeah. them the whole package. Because remember, there's a lot of people who haven't seen your act. Who haven't seen your act, you know? Especially when you do, like, when you're warming up a TV show. I do three shows a day with Rachel. We do a we do an eleven o'clock, a one thirty, and a and a four o'clock, three shows a day, and I change it up a little bit here and there when I'm improvising with the audience. But the material is such that you kind of got to keep it the same because when you're banging out three shows a day, if you try to change that up, and you'll you'll lose place of what did I do? What show is this? Is it the second show or the third show? Yeah. Is it ten o'clock in the morning or is it six o'clock at night? How, you know. Who's that lady there that I talked to her? Is she from Michigan? Is she from Texas? You know, who, you know, so you kind of got to keep it structured to a certain, certain uh, degree. But uh, I forgot the question. Now. <laughs> well, it, uh, the question is, your passion for performing has never waned. 
Yeah, yeah that's it. Yeah, I don't turn down a gig. I mean, I try to um, only now. I don't work the city as much as I used to. I mean, back in the day, I would do. I did nine sets in a row at Dangerfields. We got there at seven thirty at night. We did prom shows, and we left there yeah. at seven thirty in the morning. Me, Mike Egan, Ben Creed, Dana Gould. Uh, Jackie Mason came in, uh, Rodney would stop in and, you know, nine shows in a night. And I used to do all the, I used to catch the improv, all the, all the, you know, Santa New York, all of it. And, um, I, now that I'm at, I'm 40 years in, my kids are grown and left the house already. And my, it's me and my wife. I mean, I really love my wife still. I just want to spend more time with her and be home. You know, I, I, I like spending time with my wife. Uh, we eat, we travel as much as we can. And it's just, uh, a simple, beautiful life. So I don't work as hard. However, when you're in, I learned that in show business, as you know, when you're in demand, you gotta, you gotta take those gigs. I mean, there are, there are people that wish they could do that. So if you're blessed enough to have somebody call you and say, Hey, I'd like to have you come entertain my audience on any level. I, I try to take it not only because I enjoy it because I don't know when it's going to be my last time. I mean, I had something happen to me recently, uh, recently, three years ago. Two things happened to me physically that's really scared me a lot. Three things happened to me. Actually, I got, I had to have a stent put in my heart, which was a little scary. Then I got Bell's palsy, which took my right side out for a few months. And then I got transient global amnesia. I had an episode where... Richie Byrne and I went to do a Gonzo gig, and it was uh, Mike Marino was there emceeing. He was in town. He's a headliner. He was in town. He was hanging out with me and with us at the gig, and it was Danny C. and Bobby Gonzo, and there was a couple of Jersey comics hanging around. There was food. It was a, it was a, a YMCA. It was a 500-seater screens, big lighting bar, big stage. And I had come off my beta blocker, which I took for my heart, Small dosage, but I, I was eight days off it, weaning myself off it too quick. And I didn't realize that a beta blocker is also an anxiety drug. So I thought because I'm only on 12.5 milligrams that I could wean myself off this thing without asking a doctor, which was stupid. So Richie and I drove, Richie Byrne lives by me. We drove to the gig in, in uh, uh, Wyckoff, New Jersey. And it was mostly EMT and firemen and cops in the audience. So... Um, Mike Marino goes up, does a few minutes, then he brings up Richie Byrne to do a half hour, then he does 10 more minutes, he's going to bring me up to headline. Well, he gives me this great introduction, I get on stage, hands me, Joey E. Cola, I get on stage, forgot my act totally. And at that, that point I've been doing, I'm 40 years in, it was two years ago, 38 years, where I've been on stage, I've done thousands and thousands of shows, and I totally forgot my act. So I kept on going, hey, how you doing? Good to be here. How you doing? And seven minutes in of going, how you doing? At that point, Danny C. ran a, a bottle of water on the stage. And Gonzo and Richie Byrne, they're yelling my act to me. They're going, do the cat bit. Do the mother bit. Do this bit. They're yelling my act. And I go, sorry, guys. I got nothing. They thought I was having a stroke. So Mike Marino get, gets on stage. This was in February two years ago. He gets on stage. He comes on stage. He goes, let's hear it for me. He had the flu. He didn't think he could do it, but he tried at least. Give him a round of applause. They got me a a gratuitous round of applause, and I left the stage. Now, I knew where I was. I knew everybody around me, but I forgot my act. And it's mm -hmm. called the Transient Global Amnesia Episode, and it's a comedian's worst enemy. It was the worst 
to the point where they're going, yeah, we, we're fine, do your act, right? Like they started to heckle me, and that's when Mike Marino came back and took me off stage. Now, I, we got in the car, Richie got paid. I mean, I, Rick Gonzo was going to pay me. I said, no, 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 I, I don't want the money. We got in the car. Within 20 minutes of driving, I, I did my act for him. And driving back to Long Island, I did my act twice. But at that moment in time, something snapped. Now, it's a grant, um, the transient global amnesia episode. It happens once. It happens to people over 50. They don't know why it happens. And my, my doctors, I had my brain scan. I had my heart. I went through all the tests. And my doctor told me that he had a major league baseball player. He wouldn't tell me if it was the Mets or Yankees, but it was one of those. During a baseball game, they were in the batter's box. They had like a two-in-one count. The guy stepped out of the box, went back to the dugout because he forgot how to hit. And that was a transient global amnesia episode. Mm -hmm. So that happened. The Bell's palsy happened. I had a stent put in. So the reason why I take, back to the original, the reason why I take every gig is I'm 58. I don't know how many more of these I got, so I'm going to take every gig, and I enjoy every single yeah. gig. I, I want to talk a, a little bit about that because um, you may or may not know, in uh, 2014, I got into a train accident, hit my head on the on the windshield, and had concussion issues. A what? Uh, a train accident. Train? On, yep. I was on Amtrak. And, oh, my God. Yeah. Head hit the uh, window. Because I was sleeping when they had a slam on the brakes. So my head hit the the window next to me. Major concussion issues. Oh, my God. That I fought for a number of years. I'm so sorry to hear that, man. Well, I, I mean, we're getting old. Better. Stuff happens to us, man. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. But um, that feeling of being on stage and not knowing what what you're going to say, what, what your act is. I've been there. I've been in that. Oh, yeah, you know. Yeah. And... That feeling of, um, I don't know how it was for you, and I've never had another human being I could talk to about this. For me, it wasn't so much the fear of not remembering, because I always had confidence that that memory would come back. It was the frustration of right. not remembering at yeah. that moment. You know, yeah. that, that's what was killer for me yeah. when it happened to me on stage. Yeah, and leaving, I, you know, I was headlining that, Luckily, it wasn't a Joey Cola show. Gonzo booked it as just the comedy night. So yeah. they didn't really know who they were getting. Me, it was me, Richie Byrne, and Mike Marino. Um, so my name wasn't really attached too much to the show. Yeah. But you're right. The frustration of having to leave a stage without having said what I wanted to say, not being able to tell my story, and not getting the money that night. <laughs> I mean, it was a $500 gig, cash. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was... You know, I left, I left, I was like, it's almost like, oh my God, I drove all the way here and look what happened to me. But there was nothing I can do. I was, I was helpless. So I want to just talk on a couple of quick things before I let you go. Cause you've been really generous with your time. We're an hour and I can talk to you for like another five. Well, I got plenty of time. If you want to do a part two, I, I'll give you whatever, whatever time you want. And I'll do this as many times as you want. Well, beautiful. But I want to talk to you about, you love talking to new comics, new young comics. And I know you watch them too when they're on shows with you what are some of these mistakes you see in the young ones make well exactly what you just said the first mistake is when i'm at governors in levittown governors is beautiful it's an aaa club the, the the green room is phenomenal jimmy over there has put a lot of money into it there's a back room and everything however 
I only go into that green room that's backstage for a little while before the show, just to say hello to everybody. I, I remember that room when the bar was in the back of the room yeah. and we used to, every comic watched each other. You, you know, stand up New York. If you can remember, remember stand up New York, you walk in, you sit at that table to the right. Yep. We used to all watch each other, not only to see for the curiosity of what we're doing, to see what everybody else is doing, but maybe I could throw them a line. They could throw me a line and, 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 they're going to make me laugh. I mean, I have these laugh lines because I watch so many comedians, great comedians from Daryl Hammond to Billy Gardell to Kevin James to Ray Romano. And, you know, like I could, I could rattle off a million names. And that's why I got these laugh lines because I saw thousands of comedians do this. And one of the biggest mistakes is not watching what other people are doing. For two reasons. You don't want to be like them. You want to be your own person. And you have to know what they're doing so you're not like them exactly. And, 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 and if you know what they're doing, you know what not to do and what to do. And you can also learn from watching other comedians how to tell a joke. Like if you see a comedian take a chance, put their, stick their toe in some water that nobody's been in, and, and you're still like, wow, and everybody in the room is either laughing or not laughing, you know, oh, my God, can I stick my toe in that water? the way they did it with my personality with this and make it work or is that just a place not to go to um so what i tell young comedians is you know the standard stuff which everybody tells them you got to get on stage and as much as you possibly can you got to write as much as you possibly can but you also got to self-examine what's funny about me you know i don't have to have perfect hair there's only you know, there's only a few really good-looking comedians that could pull this, pull it off, and still be good-looking. But yet, to a certain degree, they're they're silly. Eddie Murphy is a very good-looking man who keeps himself in good shape, and women, women just love love him. You know, um, Sebastian Maniscalco is the same way. However, um, you know, uh, you know, most comics that to me that are funnier are the ones who are a little bit off, you know, a little bit. I mean, I got the Bell's palsy to actually work for me. You know, I actually did. When I got the Bell's palsy, I had to talk like this with Bell's palsy. The hardest thing to say, when you got Bell's palsy, you Bell's palsy. And my eye kept closing and stuff. And so um, it was, you know what? My dog just came in and I have, I have no idea how he got in. I think, are you home, pal? I'm sorry. My wife just walked in. I thought my house was being robbed. <laughs> um, so anyway, I tell them to, they got to use all their facilities. It's not about looking cool and being cool. It's about using all your all your facilities and being a little bit silly and vulnerable. If you don't care about what you look like on stage, like my my icebreaker is whether it's doing warm up or stand up is, oh my god, look how fat I got. Not look how fat I am. Look how fat I got. Like, in other words, look at the, I did things to make this happen. Now, once I say that one sentence, it's vulnerable. It breaks down all walls because nobody is happy with the way they look. Most people are overweight. Most people have a food addiction. And it puts us all on the same plane right there. A lot of young comedians want to make fun of other things besides themselves. And if you're not careful, man, 
you know, you got to be you that people won't accept that. That's why I don't get political at all. If people want to learn my political standing, they'll follow me on Facebook. They'll follow me a little bit closer and they'll know which way I lean. Other than that, I'm not there to, to change their mind, really. I want to I make them laugh. Yeah. That's it. And whatever I have to do, whether they're laughing at me or with me, I want them to leave having laughed hard. Yeah. And I also want to touch on this because you're mentioning, you know, to watch them for what not to do. I also watch them for what to do. I watch a comic and I want to learn from them. You right. know, I, I see I see your energy and your physicality and the way you lean into a joke. And I, I want to I want to study it. I want to deconstruct what you do and say, what of that can I apply to what I do? Um, early in my career, and I know it was an influence of yours too, Chris Rush. I would I would yeah. watch Chris Rush like he was my college, you know, and, yep. and just break down and go, all right, yeah. the complexity of the writing, how do I do that? You know, not so much how do I copy that, but how do I get that level of complexity in what I do? You yeah. Know? So when you study the comics, you're also studying for what you need to, to learn from them as well. Who are the comics you studied when you first started that you want – these are the guys I can learn from. Oh, uh, again, uh, Richard, Pry famous ones, Richard Pryor, Carlin, Rodney Dangerfield, I, uh, the antics of like uh, uh, Lou Costello, um, Bugs Bunny to me. Um, Bugs Bunny is a big influence on me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cartoons like that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, again, my uncle Ralph, my uncle Angelo, my mother and father, mm -hmm. but uh, Richie Minervini is you know is he's been a mentor to and he still is today to thousands of comedians uh any situation he does he could do any club any theater any cruise ship any vegas any any casino yet he could do a back room at little pizzerias he could do a back room in the city he is a total chameleon uh and to learn what he does to to change those colors so quick to make every audience laugh is amazing. And like you just said, you don't learn unless you watch. That's how any apprentice learns. They got to watch the professionals doing it. And when you watch somebody like Chris Rush, I mean, that's a brain. That is a, that is a, he's on, he's on so many other levels. I mean, Joe Starr, he, he studied Chris Rush. You know, Joe Starr is a great writer and a great comic, but he, he was friends with, Jerry Lewis, Max Alexander, and Chris Rush are his are his Mount Rushmore of, of comics. He likes to say that I'm on that too, but I don't I don't put myself in that category um, uh, mentally. You know, I was never able to go to a place like Chris Rush was uh, to take the uh, analytical uh, position of the condition of the human brain. And where it can go, in and out of this, in and out of this universe, like he was the uh, the quintessential metaphysical brain. When you listen to Chris Rush, the beauty of of him and and you and I watching a guy like Chris Rush is, what can I pull from that? What can I learn from watching Chris Rush that I can help my character with? And there's very few, like, because no one can copy him. Like, no one can be me. Like, people say, you know, oh, this guy did that, did, did your act, did your bit. You know, 
you mean, if you're a good enough comic, someone should be able to do your act word for word in front of you, and you should be able to follow it with your personality. Because it's not, I mean, they could take your words, but they can't take your personality, and it's part of that too. You know, I mean, when you write for another comic, <clears throat> there are certain people that write so well that you could tell when another comic is doing Jim Andrino's words, you know, like you could look at certain comics and go, ah, they didn't write that. That's Jim Mandrino's wrote that, you know, mm-hmm. and that's being a decent writer or a performer. But if you could blend them both and learn from watching other comics and how they do it, then that's how you're going to make a living at this. Now, making a living nowadays with everything on YouTube and Zoom and, 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 the, and TikTok and all this other stuff, they have to figure stuff out that we never had to figure it out. Figure out. However, I do believe there's a basic bare bones of this business that is just set up and punchline. It's a mic and a light, and it's going to a club, eating potato skins and having a cold beer. That's what works, and that's what will always work. Yeah, that is that is exactly what we have done our entire career. Yeah. The, the last thing I got to ask you about, because I think this is – is important. You're also a very trained actor. You you also studied with Joanna Bexton for a long time, and you you haven't gotten nearly enough acting work. What what is it about it? Is it just you're too focused on stand up? Is it the the warm up gigs? Yeah. Why do you think you never got the? That yeah, training? I don't know audition anymore. I was with William Morris for a while. J. Michael Bloom. Uh, I was with Abrams. You know, I had really good agents. Jeff Sussman was my manager. He's still one of my best friends. So I had. You know, Jeff Sussman, people don't know who he is. He manages Kevin James and Joe Rogan. So he just cut the deal for Rogan with Spotify. He's one of the best managers in the world. Um, Again, I had great agents. I had, um, you know, uh, Liz Lewis used to call me in all the time. She's a great casting director. And, uh, you know, uh, I used to go, I used to be in the mix. I used to audition with, with Leary and Mark Marin and Colin and, you know, I used to be in that mix, but then I got the warm-up gig and it became a day job. And I get up at 5.30 in the morning. I'm in the city by 7.30 in the morning. And sometimes I'm not home till 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night because I'm doing three shows. Now, um, I get to do stand-up during the day. So, I, you know, three shows a day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes Mondays. And then I shift gears and I become night Joey, stand-up Joey, just about every weekend um, that I want to work. So I take Sundays off and sometimes Mondays off, a lot of Mondays off. And then that's a career. I mean, if you want to be a good stand-up, you got to pick 25 clubs across the country. You can't stay in the tri-state area. 25 clubs, do them twice a year, and there's your 50 weeks. Now, that's not even talking about television appearances, fame, YouTube fame, casinos, corporate shows, things like that. Just the 25 clubs twice a year should be the main goal if you want to become a working stand-up comic. So get those three or four or five or ten that are in Long Island, New York, Pennsylvania, Jersey, and Connecticut if you're in this area. But then you got to bust out. you got to go to Michigan. you got to go to Canada. you got to go to Ohio. you got to go to these places to not only see what they laugh at, see who those people are. Because if you're going to become a national headliner and make big money, you've got to make the country laugh. So you have to get on the road also. Um, And that goes back to, like I said before, the question you had before about not turning down gigs. You know, I still work 
uh, the Comedy Cabana in South Carolina. I still try to get back to Milwaukee whenever I can. I still take corporate gigs in Chicago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I got sidetracked and I forgot the question. <laughs> I was asking you about acting, but it seems like you're, oh, you're yeah, acting. Well, yeah, that's right. I, I trained with Joanna, and uh, Kevin James put me in his sitcom a little bit, but I really don't audition for acting much anymore. I mean, stand up and warm up has taken up most of my time. Eventually, um, if the warm up thing goes by the, the, the you know, uh, falls by the, what do you know what I'm talking about? It goes yeah. away, um, and I do less stand up, then maybe I'll audition for character roles. And then I'll get an agent again and do some maybe audition for commercials and get again. But as of right now, what I got going is fine, and I'm I'm, I'm more than happy right where I am. All right. So we've been at this uh, a little bit over an hour, and uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time. But we've recorded this in the pandemic. Hopefully, by the time it airs, there won't be a pandemic, and we'll be back yeah. out in the world. Yeah. But what are you most looking forward to, comedy-wise, post-pandemic? Comedy-wise, yeah, I want. I can't wait to get in front of a full house of people with drinks and food on their table that pay to cover to come in and laugh, and uh, I can't wait to hear an MC go, ladies and gentlemen, Joey Cola again. I just, I can't wait. It's it's it gets me very emotional. I, uh, you know, you're one of the few guys I can talk to about this. It, it just gets me very emotional not to hear that and not to know the beauty that comes from from that, for me and for the, for an audience. It's a win-win, man. It's a win-win when uh, it's a perfect dance. When it's working, when the act is going right and they're laughing in the right spots and we're eating and drinking and afterwards you, you, you say goodbye to the, every audience as they leave and you sell a T-shirt or a CD or whatever. It's just... It's hard to put into words the beauty of that event, and I can't wait to get back to it. I just can't. And the camaraderie, camaraderie of working with other comics that you respect, you know? Yeah. I don't think the audience understands how much we get as performers from them. Yeah. I, I think they think it's a one-way street of us giving to them. Right. But, you know, there are times when the gigs have been so good and I've gotten so much from the audience, I, I feel like a thief for taking their money, too. You know, it, it's literally, yeah. I, I'm going to take it, you know, don't get me wrong. But it just, it, it's. I can't believe it. I get paid for that. I get paid for that. If you Have you ever heard this Bobby, uh, Bobby Darren song, The Curtain Falls? Not in a million years. Yeah, Bobby Darren did a song. He, he, he did it at, I think, the Sahara in Vegas at a live show. When the Curtain Falls or to something like that. If you listen to that song. It describes exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. Joey, I want to thank you for being our guest. i got more I want to talk to you about, so you got to come on and do another episode with me eventually. Anytime you want, as many as you want, my friend. I'm here for you. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to wait for post-pandemic, and we're going to sit in the same room, and we're going we're gonna to have a burger or something while we're doing it. I would love that. I'll go, I'll go wherever you want to go. And, uh, yeah, it could be burgers, sushi, whatever you want to eat, a big bowl of pasta, whatever you want to eat, man. I, I would love nothing better than that, man. Okay. I really would. And when this is all over, you and I finally need to go fishing together. Oh! <laughs> we talked about that for the first time back at 85. Yeah. We still have not been on a fishing boat together. Yeah, another one of my passions. I'll take you. I got the guys. I got a, I got a guy 
And if you want to go off the dock, I got the dock. Beautiful. We, we shall do that. Meals, I got everything for you, man. Come to <laughs> my I'll take you. We can go fishing. We can go crabbing. Oh, and, uh, it's the that, best. that sounds like a great time. Of All course. right, Joey, thank you so much for, for taking part of this. Thanks and, for having uh, me, Tim. And we will be back with another episode next week, guys. And see you then. This has been an amazing episode. And you literally just spent time with possibly the nicest human being in show business. Nobody has ever had anything bad to say about Joey Cola. And I don't think anybody ever will. You need to go see him for yourself. Go to joeycola.com, J-O-E-Y-K-O-L-A.com to visit his website, find out all the things that he's doing, and uh, keep watching this episode because there is just so much information to digest. Uh, we are going to be back next week with another great episode and another great comic for you. Um, until then, you could watch all of the previous episodes on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash TV, or you can find us uh, audio version of the podcast on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts from. Please subscribe, comment, and like. We will catch you next time on the Comedy Legacy Series. Until then, get on stage, people. This has been a new media comedy worldwide production.